Hey, hey, it's the Productized Podcast. I'm Brian Castle. Thank you for tuning in. Paul Jarvis is on the show today. We had a really good conversation, talked a lot about this concept of building a minimalist business, which really got me thinking. He's been a prolific writer, especially through his personal newsletter. Gives me something to think about every week, which he sends out every Sunday. So you should definitely check that out over at pjrvs.com. That's his personal site. So we talked a lot about that idea of minimal minimalism in business and how that relates to profitability and lifestyle, and um, but as well as growth and personal growth and that kind of banter. But then we also spent a good chunk of time talking about Paul's upcoming book, Company of One. And for this one, he's going the traditional publishing route. And I, I dug into what it's like to find a publisher and find an editor and agent and that whole process and even the business side of publishing a book traditionally. So that was a really interesting part of the conversation as well. So yeah, we covered a lot of ground as always. You know, we got into Paul's story a bit. We talked about info products, software products, writing books, growing an audience, even when you don't have anyone in your audience, you know, going back years sending emails to 12 people, as he said. And today, of course, he's sending to thousands of people. So it was just a really wide ranging conversation. Really enjoyed it. Always inspiring and insightful. Here's my conversation with Paul Jarvis. Enjoy. All right. I'm here with Paul Jarvis. Paul, thanks for joining me today. Hey, no worries, Brian. It's good to be here. Yeah, good to talk to you again. So I think it's really interesting timing on this conversation like we were talking about before. You just published an article about minimalist business. I want to get the title right. Depends which site you read it on. The title's different on every... On every yeah, site. right. So on your blog, I see a guide to running a minimalist business. And I think that's really interesting. But you know, before we really dive into that concept and how you've approached that. I mean, why don't you start off like, what are you kind of focused on this year in 2017? And, and how do you spend most of your time right now? Yeah, so well, <laughs> most of my time this week is in the garden. But outside of that, for work, most of my time, I'm currently writing a book for Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, the publisher, who's been around since the, I just found this out too, they've been around since the 1800s, which is a ridiculously <laughs> long amount of time for a business to be around. So I'm actually impressed by that. So I'm writing a book. I'm working on uh, getting a software product ready for release. And then I'm just like teaching the courses that I teach on the internet, Chimp Essentials, Grow Your Audience, and Creative Class. So three things, and I try not to do any of those things all at the same time. I try to just do like one one of those at a time if I can help. I definitely want to kind of dig into that idea of having a like a portfolio of different projects and, and businesses and products. And so just to kind of get an update on this, so I know that a few years back you were doing some consulting, design work, web work. Is that basically all phased out at this point and you're focused on products or, or what? Yeah, so I phased out um, any and all client work a couple years ago, probably two or three years ago. So yeah, but I did that for like 16 years. So I felt like it was time to, I loved it. Like I loved all the clients that I worked with, but I just felt like it was time to, to try some new stuff. It's a little ridiculous, but I'm the kind of person who like figures out how to do something and then like works so hard at building that up. And then and it just cuts it all off. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I was doing it for 16 years, but like, sure. Yeah. It's interesting because I, I know that a lot of people listening to this and, and in my audience are coming from that background and they have that kind of set in their sights. Like I've been freelancing, consulting for a while. I want to get into something more scalable, whether that's software, info products, content, 
whatever it is. And I think you've made that transition not only successfully, but I think in a really unique way. And I think that plays into this concept of building a, a minimalist business, self-employed lifestyle. So why don't we kind of dive into that a bit? You know, Tell me about this concept of a minimalist business. Like, How do you think about that? Yeah. So a, a lot of it comes down to kind of reconciling the fact that I'm one, cheap, and two, not a manager. So I realized that the things about myself, and it's obviously different for everybody, right? But like, I know that I don't like to spend a lot of money to make money. And I know that that, that ad is like, oh, you got to spend money to make money. I'm like, <laughs> I don't like spending money. <laughs> Why can't we just do the make money part? <laughs> exactly. I just go to the make money part. So that's one of the that's one of the things that kind of drew me to running a like supremely lean business. And the other thing is that, especially when I was consulting and doing like service-based work as well, was that the reason I was working for myself is because I like doing that work. So if I was a designer, it was because I liked doing design, right? So if I had grown that, and I could have grown that, like I had waiting lists of like three to six months most of the time for client work. So I could have hired designers and project managers and stuff like that and been running a company. But the problem is that I don't like managing people. I get jealous of the people that I'm managing and just, why, why can't I just be doing the work? This isn't fun. So that's kind of what, what led me to this sort of idea that, like, how can I run a business as, as minimally as possible? And I guess the third thing is, too, that, like, I'd, I'd rather just be Peter Pan. Like, I don't like responsibility. Like, it, pretty much every aspect of my life, responsibility sucks. Being an adult sucks. <laughs> so if I have as little responsibility as possible while still making sure, like, I do exactly what I say I'm going to do with clients or customers, whoever, then then it feels like a win. But, like, I because I, I'm friends with people and I know a lot of people who have employees. And, like, there's a mental toll of being responsible for other people. Like, it's definitely there. Yeah, I mean, there's this, like you said, like, there's this feeling of responsibility. And I mean, I've, I've gone that route too, where I started out as kind of like a freelancer doing a lot of solo work. And then I started to grow it a bit with contractors. And then that started going down the direction of a true agency. I pulled back from that, then got into more focused productized services. And that's where I'm at today with a pretty big team on the productized service side. And there are definitely days when I'm just like, you know what? It's running, it's growing, it's profitable. And having a team in place does allow me a certain level of freedom to be able to outsource the day-to-day -day work and, and I get to work on the business and all that. But um, there is this feeling of responsibility, like I have to keep it going and I do have to keep growing it and I have to make sure that the profit is there to be able to pay everyone every month. And I feel this responsibility to them and not, not only to myself and not only to our customers, but to the team. And there's also days when, I'm just gonna like vent all my frustrations on you right now. Um, when I do want to work on other projects that are not even related to like audience ops and, and I feel like I'm th that responsibility, right? Like, like my team is depending on me to drive sales for audience ops, right? So it's, it, yeah, it, there's all sorts of, uh, kind of complexities there. And the, the other piece of what you just talked about is profitability, right? So this is something that I, I've said again and again, I don't think it's talked about enough. Everybody looks at like, oh, it's a million dollar business, top line revenue, but you know, that, is it? 10% profitable or 90% profitable? Like We don't know. And especially for self-employed, self-funded, bootstrapped uh, entrepreneurs, a lot of consultants don't even really consider themselves like they're not thinking about venture funding or, or term sheets and all that. They're, they're thinking about like, how, how much do I need to make in order to pay my bills and have a little bit left over? 
Yeah, and actually, that's 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 interesting you brought that up because I like I a lot of people like to focus on that like top line number, the like the gross revenue. Whereas I like to think like I can make more money if I make the same amount of money but spend less to make it, and I, that's always going through my mind like, oh, do I need this laptop or should I buy this? Even like personal expenses because I work for myself. The money is technically like company and then Paul's, but like I'm the only one who owns a company. So like even if I buy a personal expense, like a vehicle, it's like, okay, now I need to sell this many more courses or this many more seats in my SaaS app to be able to afford this. And is it worth it? Sometimes the answer is yes. Sometimes the answer is no. So I like to try to think of like, okay, well, what can I do to have the least amount of expenses so I'm profitable each month sooner with having to make less money? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, looking at those expenses, super important. Before we get too deep here, I want to definitely make sure that people who are just learning about you now, like what are your businesses? Obviously, your site is, uh, it's a minimalist domain name as well, pjrvs.com for Paul Jarvis. That's where I know you from. And, and you've got articles and your newsletters there, which is the Sunday Dispatches. If anyone's listening, subscribe to it. Really, really awesome stuff. Gives me something to think about every weekend. Uh, yeah, a lot of good content there. What are the businesses or projects that you kind of sink most of your time into these days? It kind of changes from month to month, which kind of suits my personality really well because I like to be working on different things and then I'll come back to things. So my my business right now is really three components. So the first is a book that I'm writing for a publisher. The, the next is the software company that I'm working on with Zach Gilbert called Fixtail. And the third are the three courses that I run. And like, the way that it breaks down is the courses make almost all of the money right now because I'm trying to get like, I haven't written the book yet. So obviously I haven't made money on the book and the software product also hasn't launched yet. We did a small round of like selling founding memberships, which actually was a really good idea because we basically validated the idea for the product and we raised a bit of capital from people who want to use it instead of looking at like the venture capital route. So we raised money from people who actually wanted to use it to prove that there was a market for the product. So those are the three things that I'm working on. And it changes week to week, but that's kind of where my business is at right now. And it's mostly writing. <laughs> Almost all of those things involves just a massive amount of writing as well as a little bit of design. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, talking about this idea of minimalist businesses, it does seem like you are growing like kind of a portfolio of different products. So you've got the book on the horizon, you've got the software product, which I know full well, there's a ton of work and time that goes into developing that, even if you're not the one coding it, they're planning it, designing it, user experience, marketing it, pre-selling it, all of that. That's a huge time suck. Courses, you are really consistent with your weekly newsletter, weekly articles. So I read a quote from your recent piece about this, where you questioned, is more actually better? But like, how do you balance that? Like, you do have this portfolio of products, but there is this balance of like, how much you're able to invest time into that stuff. Mm -hmm. So right now I'm at 100% the limit of what I can take on. <laughs> right. So like if somebody came to me and pitched me like an idea to like, actually I, I turned down being um, an advisor for a software company and I was paid. I turned down being like a paid advisor for a software company because like right now I'm stretched to my limit next year. The book will be done. I, the book doesn't come out till like the end of next year because it's traditional publishing. So it takes forever, but by then I'll have written it. So there will be, but like I try to basically be uh, as specific with boundaries as possible with, with my life. So right now the three projects that I have seem to be 
really good because if, like, if I don't feel like designing software, I can write the book a bit. If I don't feel like writing the book a bit, I can work on the courses a bit and the marketing. Because the courses are all done. It's just a matter of like tweaking funnels and, and, and marketing things. So I feel like for each of the three projects I have, there's a different aspect of my brain that I can use. So for me, that's good because there's always something that I can do for one of those three things. But I don't want to add more. And the kind of the idea of enough really comes from questioning growth where like I know that if I added more stuff, I might be able to make more money, but then something else in my life would suffer. Like I wouldn't be able to be out in my garden as often as I am. I wouldn't have as much time to spend with my wife or that sort of thing. So I have enough things on the go right now. It supports me. It supports like paying my mortgage and putting a bit away for savings. And I don't necessarily need, like I'm not chasing, I, I didn't in my twenties for sure. Like I would work 20 hour days just because it was like, oh, if I work an extra 10 hours today, I can make like an extra thousand dollars or something. And now it's like, I, I already made money today. Like I made enough to cover my necessities. Like, I'm good. Uh, yeah, I can, I can <laughs> stop for a bit. And it's good too, because like, as you get older, your body stops cooperating with like sitting in a chair at a computer. <laughs> yeah, I know I can't pull the uh, all-nighters, you know, working on products like I used to. I've got a, especially with young kids, it's like I've got a short window of time to get what I need to do done, and then I'm just off, and I have to be off. So cool. So definitely later in this interview, we're gonna we're gonna dig into your book that you're writing, Company of One. Sounds really interesting. I want to hear about the process of going the publishing route. That that'll be interesting. But before we get into that, I I want to stick on this for a little bit. Speaking of like taking on all these different projects, is there an opportunities, shiny object syndrome? We all, we all get it. Some of them are legit opportunities. Like you identify a problem or pain or you're hearing customers talk about a need for something or a partnership comes your way or something. How do you or do you like kind of evaluate or vet new ideas or is there a certain set of criteria that you decide whether or not something is a good fit for you to take on? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, definitely. And I think that a lot of people struggle with this because they think it has to be like a binarily, if that's even a word, a binarily massive decision where it's like, okay, say I work at a company and I'm thinking about going freelance. Well, in order to go freelance, I need to do freelance full time and I need to give up my benefits and my salary and and just start doing that like cold turt, like just stop one thing, go to another thing. And that's like, I wouldn't know how to do that. Like that's, it's scary to make decisions that massive. Whereas for me and with opportunities, I like to consider like the minimum viable opportunity, right? So like, if I think this is a good idea, if it's something that I'm excited about, if it's something that I see a clear market for, if it's something that they're, and really what I look for when building products is, is I look to fulfill questions that people are asking me. So like, all the courses that I made are because people were constantly emailing me like to get that sort of information. So I'm lazy. So instead of answering like 600 emails on a topic of like freelancing or setting up MailChimp, I just made a course. So then I wouldn't have to keep answering all those emails. But it started with just answering a couple emails though. So like the opportunity of say making a course on MailChimp, for example, that started with just me answering handful of emails. And then I wrote an article about it. And then people really liked it and people shared it and it got popular. And then I thought about, okay, well, I'm going to make it like a video for this. And I made that and then it did well. And then I made a course with like, I think it was about 15 lessons. And then, and then it just kept growing from there. So the opportunity I saw as like one small step that I could take and then reevaluate and then take another step in that direction and then reevaluate. And then at the end of it, I'm left with, 
a course that has like 40 lessons in it and, and thousands of students. But it wasn't that binary decision of like, I have an idea to help people learn MailChimp. So I'm going to take six months and build this product. No, it was like, I work on this for a couple minutes answering email and to spend like 30 minutes writing an article and spend an hour doing a video the next week. So it was just like a series of small decisions because small decisions aren't as scary to make, right? Yeah. So that definitely makes sense on the educational product side, right? How about for something like a software product, especially when you're working with a partner on it, getting involved in that, that seems like you are or you're potentially committing to a pretty deep level of work for a long period of time. Like, I'm wondering, first of all, like, from a product standpoint, like, do you think, like, this product is simple enough that it can become uh, kind of self-sustaining? And then it also, did you work out any sort of understanding or agreement with your partner about time investment and, and expectations there? Yeah, so it's, it's kind of interesting to look at sort of the similar track that I just described with, like, an info product to software. So the first thing I did is I wanted to, and just the backstory, Fixtail pushes Stripe data to MailChimp subscribers. So if somebody buys something and pays you on Stripe, it pushes that e-commerce data, the name of the product, the sale, to your MailChimp list so you have that data for subscribers. So in teaching the courses, I, I needed this. Like I needed to be able to segment my list based on purchasers, not purchasers, how much they spent, what products they did or did not buy. I couldn't find a good solution to that. Like I, I was using Zapier to pass subscriber data to groups but you can't pass things like the revenue number, like you can't do enough with it. So then I actually hired my co-founder, Zach, to program the solution for me. So I paid him a couple grand to write this code so that it would work for me. And then in teaching the course that I teach on MailChimp, I do like walkthroughs of MailChimp and I use my own MailChimp account. So it's like live data. So people were seeing like, how come it says your ROI for this campaign was like 4,000%? Or like, why is it showing revenue numbers for each of your campaigns? And I was like, I got my buddy Zach to write the code for it. And everybody was like, um, <laughs> how can I buy this right this second? And then I got like, yeah, there's probably hundreds of people that were like, I need this. Can I pay Zach to do this for me? And then I talked to Zach. I'm like, you can sell this to individual people or we can make this into software. And he was like, let's do it. And we basically, especially for project partnerships, I always like to figure out how we can be an equal partnership because I don't feel that partnerships for founders work as well if it's not equal footing. Like one per, if it's not equal, then one person always tends to feel like the person with the most stake always tends to feel like the boss or the leader. And the other person tends to feel like an employee. And I know because I've been in both situations on either side. So we figured out a way to make it basically a 50-50 split. If he handles all of the code, then I would do all of the design and the UI and the UX and the marketing of it. And that's a that's a pretty, like, we don't keep track of hours or anything like that. But the amount of, like, if he's spending a day coding, I know I can spend a day writing some marketing pieces for it or doing some design for the back end or the front end. Yeah, and and even, like, taking the time aspect out of it, like, the value that each of you bring, of course, is essential for it to work, so... Yeah, so we both have the same kind of value. So we just kind of determined, like, we knew we wanted an equal partnership. So we just had to figure out what was required to make it an equal partnership. Instead of working the opposite way, we're like, I bring this to the table, I bring this to the table. What's this worth in terms of, like, our cut of 100%? Yeah, It was more like, our cut is 50-50. What can we put on your side of that line? And what can we put on my side of that line where the checks and balances kind of equal equally? I also really like the simplicity of the product. And it is the type of product that, it solves a problem, but then it works in the background, 
right? So that's got to just really tamp down the customer support request and like the onboarding and customer success that typical SaaS companies have to deal with. It's the type of thing like you plug it in, turn it on, and it does its job. Yeah. Oh, sorry. There was one. Uh, <laughs> I missed another step. So the next step after we decided to make the software was we got a working, we got like a proof of concept working because we just wanted to make sure that it would work because we're dealing with two different APIs. So we got a proof of concept working where like we could push a bit of data from Stripe to MailChimp and then we did a pre-sale. So we said, if anybody wants the software, and it was software that I've been talking about a while, it was software that a couple hundred people said they were interested in. So we were just like, you said you were interested. You can buy lifetime access to, to Fixtail when it's ready for this amount. And then we ran that for, I think, two weeks and we raised a, a decent amount of money. And again, that validated it. Like we hadn't built, we hadn't done any design work at that point. We just kind of figured out how it would work and ran like a couple simple tests off a Roku environment to see if it worked. I, d- I did the same with this SaaS that I'm building right now, Ops Calendar. And in your case, you already had it built and you were using it. In my case, I did pre-sell it to my audience but mainly I did that because I was like, I am not about to go hire a developer and spend all these months and thousands of dollars on this unless I know that there are customers there. It's just about, yeah, just minimizing that that risk. Exactly. Cool. So let's kind of go back a bit, you know, go back a few years in your career, uh, maybe back to consulting or I don't know, maybe even before that. Was there a time that you can point to when things were over hectic, over complicated, too, too many things going on where you started to key into this idea, like I need to remove things? Yeah. I mean, like I said, most of my 20s, I just basically took on all the work that was available to me, even if it was too much. Right. So like I would like not leave my house. I was like the typical Internet nerd. Like I'd be on my computer on the weekends, like drinking Red Bulls and ordering takeout just so I could like sit there and, and work for as many clients as possible. A few years ago when, when you were doing you know design consulting work, I remember you had a really focused way of market from what I remember you you know you only worked with like one client at a time and it was like I don't know like ten thousand dollar projects only and here's what you get and here's what I don't do and like yes there's a lot of that and it, I'm interested to hear how you got to that point and made kind of consulting minimal and more enjoyable for you. <laughs> yeah. So like I said early on I was just taking on whatever whatever work possible. It was actually funny because it was like th- this whole idea of like uh, enough really came from my buddy who's a, a South African accountant. Him and I, where I used to live, was a surf town up the coast of the island I live on. And we were out surfing. It was like August or, or October or so. So getting into the year, but not entirely past the year. And we were just talking about work. And he was like, yeah, by next week, I'll have made enough money for the year. So I'm going to go rock climbing until January. And I was like, what? And then he like takes off on a wave and I'm like, <laughs> what just happened? Wait a minute. <laughs> Wait a minute. And then he came, then he like rode the wave and paddled back. And we started talking about it. And he's like, I know exactly, like I know what I need to live and thrive and to invest some into my future. And I don't work past that. And I was like, that's really interesting. And then I started to think like, okay, well, how can I, I don't necessarily, and in the beginning, it wasn't like I've made enough money. It was like, I have enough work and I need to figure out how much I need to charge for that. And what I really did in the later years of consulting, when I feel like I was understanding it better, is figure out the rules of engagement where it wasn't me just being like a picky bossy pants consultant. It was me knowing exactly what needed to happen um, in a project and like in the entire process, which I would map out 
for a project that would ensure the, the best recipe for success for the client, right? So figuring out how they could like give them the maximum possibility for them to win based on all of the things that I knew that I could bring to the table and turn that into a process and turn that into basically like we don't deviate from this thing. And this will give us the maximum ability to be as creative as possible in solving your problem but we don't deviate from this thing. So here's the exact things that I do. Here are the exact things that I don't do. If the things that I do can help your business, then we will work together in this specific way. And I had a starting rate. I was like, I don't work on projects under $10,000. So I could easily vet every tire kicker that was like, well, my buddy said that he would build me a website for like a, a six pack or like $200. I, was like, I wasn't competing with that because if people saw the $10,000 on my site before they got into my automated onboarding process, then they would just go away. And then, then I would only basically, and, and that's why I landed a ridiculous number of leads is because by the time I would talk to the person, they had already like seen how much I charge, like the starting price. They'd already read my project packet. They looked at my process. They looked at the success stories from previous projects that I had done and collected. And so typically it was still word of mouth. So when I talked to them, they basically like we wanted to work together. We just wanted to make sure that we could understand each other. And that's why there was always one part of the onboarding process that was not automated. Because I always I found that I always needed to have a conversation with somebody because if I couldn't understand them or they couldn't understand me, it's going to be a really bad project. And I like to be as efficient as possible. Because like you said, I'd only take on like one or two projects a month. So I wanted to make sure that those projects were the best possible projects and as well that those projects ran as smoothly as humanly possible. Things go off the rails sometimes, but like for the most part, they wouldn't. And for the most part, if we were starting a project, I would know exactly what date the project is going to be done. All the work's going to be done. All the revisions are going to be signed off on everything because the process was so set that we could just like day three, this is the things we're doing. Day four, these are the things that you're doing. Yeah, there are kind of no decisions to make. I mean, that's a concept that, you know, I've been talking about again and again through the productized program and here and, and elsewhere, obviously not reinventing the wheel here, but finding that focus, not only in what you're doing and what you're delivering, but also who you do it for, like who your most ideal client is, and just finding more of those people who have that problem. And I always like to think about it like, if somebody just came to you and said, look, I have this problem, I have a budget. I don't know what I need. You tell me what I need. It's like your chance to come up with the best possible solution that you know will work. It's like the dream client scenario for most consultants where rather than having the client dictate what they want, you can just offer like, look, this is the solution to that problem. And either it fits you or it doesn't. Yeah. And it's a lot of that comes down to how you position your expertise, right? Like it's the difference between thought of as an expert and being thought of as a technician. If I'm hiring a technician, I'm going to tell them what to do and how right. to do it, right? Like if I'm going on Fiverr and looking for a web designer, I'm going to tell them exactly what they need to do so that they get paid the $5 or $10 or whatever. But if I'm hiring an expert, I'm going to come to that expert and say like, these are the problems with my current website. What are we going to do? And then it's not, like you said, it's up to that expert to say like, okay, these are the things that I think we should focus on because these are the things that are going to give us the best chance for success based on other projects that I've done before. And then as a client, I'm going to trust that person to deliver on those things. So I'm letting that person, I'm describing what my problem is instead of prescribing what I want the solution to be. And that's where a lot of freelancers and consultants um, get stressed out or get unhappy with their work is because they put themselves in a position to be told how to do their work. 
And they're not employees. Like the, your clients aren't your boss that tells you how to work. They're hiring you to do something. So it's up to you to teach them that you are the expert that you are, really. You know, the other thing I want to kind of touch on here, you really put yourself out there, especially through writing more than anything else, I think. And you've been so consistent about it. And that, of course, has helped you build your audience. You do a lot of guest article writing on pretty large traffic, high audience places. And um, how early on did you start doing that and, and then commit to it o- over the long term? And I mean, obviously, that's had an impact on both consulting and then being able to transition into more passive products. Can you talk a bit, a bit about that? Yeah, certainly. So in, in the beginning, when I started writing, I was just doing consulting and, and client work. And what I found was that every web designer ever was writing for other web designers. And I was like, this doesn't make sense. Like other web designers aren't hiring me. And so I was like, okay, why don't I start writing for the type of people that I want to hire me instead? How about I start writing about the problems that they're having or the things that they find are valuable? And so that's what I started to do. And so I've been writing since before I even did products. And that really helped me get like basically my mailing list then was I was still writing articles um, every week, but it would also include like I have two openings in three months. If you want to hire me, then let's talk. And so I was even doing it like it's funny because like I do the same things now with products It's like you build scarcity and demand. And it's honest as well, because like I only had time to do like one or two projects a month. So me saying that publicly, like, hey, I've only got I've got two openings for August and I, I book projects based on receiving down payments and getting signed contracts. So if you're interested, then let's talk. It's interesting because people look at, at guys like you and people who've grown these large audiences. And it's like, of course, you spend time today, week to week, writing these articles and, and pressing send to thousands and thousands of email subscribers. Like, of course, that makes sense for you to do in your business. But go back years ago, you were doing the same thing week in, week out. Whereas most people don't take that time and say, look, I'm going to set aside X hours a week and just write something like I'm not going to get paid for this this week, but I'm going to do it and put in that work and that thought and that effort of who I'm writing to and and all that. So very early on, you took the time to really work on your business and work on those personal projects. And that paid off massively as you went on. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that kind of the common thread with a lot of people that have an audience is that they were doing probably the same thing before they had one. Like I was writing in an article to like a dozen people for the first couple months, right? Like, it was a couple dozen people. Like it, it wasn't even a hundred people to start. I didn't even have to have a paid MailChimp account. Right. You get like the first comment or the first email back. It's like, what? Somebody's there? You know? Yes. <laughs> Somebody signed up for my website. I actually looked on the web and I don't even remember what I, I wish I could remember. But like I found my website from 1999 for my design and consulting business. And like I had a mailing list sign up in the 90s. And what I think it did was it just emailed me that person's email address. And then it would like BCC them when I had something to say, like there wasn't, (laughs) I don't even know if there's email software back then. But like, I still like in my mind, I was thinking like, okay, I if I want to get clients, I need to stay top of mind with clients. And that's the reason why I started writing is because I didn't want their decision to be deciding whether I was the right person out of a group of many, I wanted them to decide that I was the right freelancer out of a group of one. Like I basically only wanted to compete with myself for any project that I bid on because people would see my name every single week in their inbox. They would see my writing on sites that they read, not on web design. Like clients don't read web design sites if they're looking for a web designer. They're reading sites that are useful to their business and their niche kind of thing. That's a really good way to think about it. So this idea of growth, I understand 
recognizing that we don't have to have this incessant need to grow this product or grow the revenue, grow the MRR, more projects, more products, more people, more customers. Like Every business has that assumption. But at the same time, what I'm wondering in your case is how do you think about growth from like year to year, maybe on a personal level, or, you know, like if you look at 2016 to 2017 or to 2018, like, are there big goals that you're trying to attain and, and work towards? And how do you think about that growth from year to year? It's funny because it's kind of a, a weird mix of like, I'm super ambitious, but really not goal oriented. <laughs> so like, I want to do things that really, really push myself. And if I'm not doing at least a couple things that really, really push myself, I feel like I'm kind of stagnating. But on the other hand, like, I don't really have set goals for myself. Like, I don't have an MRR that I want to reach with my SaaS. I don't have a number of books that I want to sell with my books. I'm really focused on instead, like, because I found that that doesn't serve me very well. Like, for me as a person, it changes for everybody. But like, for me as a person, it's kind of like, disabling to think about like, okay, if I want to get like the New York Times bestseller list, it's hard to sit down and write a book when I'm thinking about selling that many copies of a book or selling that many seats in my software or selling that many courses. Like it's really hard to actually do the work if I'm thinking about what possible outcome there could be. And as well, I find that we're, we have such little control over outcomes. Like we can put in the work, we can know our stuff, we can do everything that it takes. And like sometimes like I've been doing marketing for a very long time. And sometimes I'll market something that's a complete flop. And so like I can do all of the same steps that I've done hundreds of times before and it doesn't always have the same outcome. So outcomes I think are tricky things to chase, right? Like having a set number of like, I need to make this much money a year. Like obviously if you need to make a certain amount a year, then you need to try for that. But if you have like, oh, I want to make a million dollars a year. Like in my 20s, I was like, I want to make a million dollars a year. And that's why I was working like 20 hours a day, which is ridiculous. But I find that the more that I kind of work the process of each thing, the more I enjoy it, the more I feel like I get more out of it because I'm focused on the present. So I don't like how many copies of the book it sells. Cool. If it sells a lot, if it doesn't, that's fine. I mean, I love this idea of like, look, obviously I build businesses to add value and to make money, but it's not worth it unless I'm actually enjoying the day-to-day doing the work and being inspired and being challenged. Exactly. Like I'm entitled to the process. I'm not entitled to the outcome of that process. It's just like, it's gravy. Like if good things happen, then that's just gravy on top of an already delicious meal. Do you look back at all, like look at last month or last quarter or last year and ever like take time to like evaluate like that went pretty well or, you know, I I should have done things differently or or this didn't turn out the way that I had hoped? Like, do you do any sort of like evaluation to, to think about what's next? Yeah, like and a lot of times it's it's a hard look because sometimes like there'll be some things that I really like that just make absolutely no money. And like I like doing what I do, but I also like making money. So like I have to stop some of the things that I do, or I have to like kill off a software product, or I have to like stop trying to sell a course that's not selling kind of thing. Got an example of this? Yeah, the last software product that I started was called Your Pack. And I think we pre-sold like two founding memberships. And I think we have two monthly subscribers. So like we can't like I don't want to keep working on that when we've tried like we've redesigned the homepage a couple of times. We've rewritten all the positioning for it. We've tried to tweak it to solve different problems for different people and it's like it hasn't really worked so i can't spend a ton of time focused on that like obviously i don't want to keep like i'm not going to kill the product off because there's people using it but it doesn't cost me anything it doesn't take up any like mental bandwidth to keep it going i've had some courses like i had a course called unlost 
which probably sold in the thousands compared to other courses that I have that sell in the hundreds of thousands. So like, it just like it didn't. So I didn't try to sell that. I didn't try to sell that more times. The tough thing, especially once you've built an audience and you have like lots of subscribers and customers, it, are those projects that do just okay, or they do a, a, like they're not complete flops, but they're not all out successes. And it's like, what do you do with those? And I mean, for me, I've, I've certainly been guilty of just keeping them going for so long, way beyond any sort of return on investment, like just totally losing money, but like it makes a couple hundred bucks. Like I should do customer support for that stupid WordPress theme for years on end. Like, yeah, but it's sunk cost bias, right? Like we feel like we invested so much into it that we have to keep, like I, I just killed last week. I killed off all my WordPress themes. Like the domains now point to nowhere because they weren't making enough money. I didn't enjoy selling them. So I killed them off. And now those domains just go to like hover or something. Like I, I just like reset to default yeah. Like last week, I just launched a redesign of my personal site. And in the process, I was like, oh, wait, I've got the sales page for my very first ebook that I did back in 2013. I really don't want to go through the process of redesigning that page. And it's making like a fraction of what the other stuff makes. It's like, all right, well, I guess it's time to retire it right now. You know? Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of what needs to happen is like I retire products all the time. Sometimes I'll like have one last for all. Like, hey, if you want this thing, it's available today only. Fire sale. Everything must go. And then I won't sell it again kind of thing. But yeah, like it's tough because like they're your product babies. But you have to sometimes, it sounds dark, man, but like sometimes you got to kill your babies, your product babies. Not really. Don't do that. That's right. <laughs> uh, all right. So Company of One. Obviously, this is not your first book or big written work, like a course or something. But it is, am I correct? Is it, is it your first traditional publishing route for a book? First time going that route? Yeah, all my other books have been self-published. So this is the first time that I got like an agent, a publisher, and an editor, and a team of people doing whatever the team will do. So how did that whole process come about? Like, actually, like, like the initial idea for even doing a book as your next big thing, like how did that start? Yeah, so I started to think about why my business was doing as well as it was and like what decisions that I had made to get it to what I consider successful, which is different for everybody. Like if Elon Musk looked at my company, he'd be like, I doesn't make it. Or like if I was on a shark tank, they'd be like, you're not getting any of our money, Paul, kind of thing. But like I was looking at like <laughs> subjectively for myself. I was like, okay, well, I make enough money to support my family and have a, an okay house and vehicle and land that I can garden. So like what decisions did I make to get to this point? Because I know that that doesn't happen for everybody. So I was like, how can I figure this out so I can like show other people? And I think what I kept coming back to was the fact that the very best times and the very worst times, what continued to save my ass and to keep it thriving was the fact that I had stayed as small as possible, like both in terms of like, I was just working for myself, I never had employees, but also in terms of like, if I had like a really good year, a really good month, like I didn't go out and buy like a crazy sports car or like a massive house, like, regardless of how well I was doing, I was still living like, with just enough to be happy with my life kind of thing. And so I started to think about it. And I started to kind of abstract it out and think about like, okay, well, is growth necessarily a good thing in all circumstances? And I don't think it is, especially blind growth. And what I found as well is that company, because the book is a lot for people like us who are like indie product makers or consultants or, or that sort of thing. But it's also for people who work in companies because I kind of found some correlations there. And I found that if growth is questioned, it works a lot better. 
So it's not that I'm anti-growth, or it's not even that the book is just for people who run one-person businesses. It's just that if you question things, then you don't necessarily need to solve every problem with more, right? And the solution to everything isn't adding more to it. So I guess I can kind of understand the decision to go the publishing route or, or just to make this a book and not a course, because it's kind of like, it's not a how to do X, Y, Z. It's more like an argument for like, look, there's this way. It's an interesting, you, you should look at this before you count it out kind of, kind of argument, right? Like, yeah. And that's why I made it a book is because it's more of a, these are the things I think, and this is the research that I've done as opposed to courses I feel like need to be actionable and teachable. Whereas this is just kind of, here's a whole ton of knowledge that I have collected from people smarter than myself. And this is the argument, this is the thesis that I have, and this is the argument that I'm going to present to you. So it just felt like it was a book. And I, when I started to think about like, okay, do I want to go the self-publishing route? I was like, meh, <laughs> like, I have done that before. And obviously, like, I didn't win at it completely. But like, I've sold over 70,000 copies of my books, they've been translated into a bunch of languages. And so like, I figured that I knew all that I could learn about self-publishing without getting like really, really deep into it and like making that my life. So I was like, I haven't tried traditional publishing. Like, let's see, one, if I can do it and two, what I can learn from it. And then what was the next step to go that like you decided I'm going to try the, the traditional publishing route like, is the next step to go get an agent or, or what? Yeah. So I didn't even know what the next step was. I asked a couple of my friends that have traditional publishing deals and they're like, get an agent. Like, you don't know what you don't know, Paul. Get an agent. So the next thing that I did was I asked my mailing list. Anybody know an agent? <laughs> yes. The very first thing they sent to my mailing list this year in January 2017 was, uh, I want to write a book that's traditionally published. I'm looking for an agent. Anybody know one? And I got a flood of replies because I talked to, remember, I talked to these people like every single week. I'd show up in their inbox every Sunday. And there's a lot of smart and connected people on my mailing list that I, that I realized in doing that. And I got so many leads for agents. So I, I narrowed it down to a handful of them. I talked to them all on the phone because I still think like communication is still important. And then I just basically decided, like, hey, this agent is the funnest to talk to. She's super, super smart. She's really well connected. She understands all of the things that I know absolutely nothing about. So I'm going to go with her. And at this point, did you just have the idea and kind of like how far along in the writing process were you at that point? And also like, where are you today? Zero words. At that point, I had written nothing about the book. And it doesn't always work like this. But how it typically works is that you pitch an agent your idea for the book. And they're obviously going to look at your back catalog of writing and they're looking for audience, like they're looking to see. And it's so it's like getting a record deal, like record, because I was in music for a long time. Record companies only want to sign bands that don't need a record deal. It's the same with publishing, like publishers and editors and agents only want to sign the people that already have an established audience. So the main thing for finding an agent to finding a publisher to finding an editor was like proving that my audience was big enough and that they were like invested enough in the ideas that I had. So I pitched the idea of the book to my agent without having written a single word about it. I wasn't even 100% sure on the title. I was like, I kind of want the book to be called Company of One, but I'm like, we can discuss it. And so from there, once I found an agent, the first thing that you have to do is write a book proposal. And a book proposal is really writing a book without writing a book. So I wrote, it's like 60 something pages long. And it really just gets into how you plan to market it, what your audience is like, and then a chapter summary, like a, a chapter overview. 
knowing that the book hasn't been written yet. And obviously that will change as you go through it, probably. Yeah, but that's kind of like the template, I guess. So like minor things can change, but the bigger things like the publisher. So you write the proposal, your agent ships, shops it around to editors like she shops. And I didn't even realize this. She shops it around to specific editors. She thinks will want to take it up the chain at their publishing house. So she doesn't just go to like HarperCollins or Penguin or something like that and say like, hey, you want this book that Paul's going to write? She talks to like specific editors at publishers and says like, is this a book that you want to edit? And then if the editor is like, yeah, I'm on board, then it's up to them to pitch it to their team and ultimately to their publisher and get sign off for it. You know, this idea of going like self-published or published, one of the fears or, or maybe questions that, that folks may have when going the traditional publishing route would be how much creative freedom that maybe that's the wrong word like how much creative input are you receiving from agents editors publishers on your idea and like how much are they asking you to change or giving you suggestions on how to change the angle or what to include like how much of that happens so that's actually a really good question and that's one of the reasons why i wanted to go traditional because i want to be a better writer writers always hate it when i say this but like i couldn't care less about technical writing i don't care how to form sentence I want to figure out how to get my ideas across as clearly as possible and be able to sell those ideas. It doesn't even have anything to do with like selling products. I want to be able to sell my opinions so that people can be like, that makes sense. Like this argument was formulated well. I agree or disagree with it kind of thing. So my agent really helped me. And a lot of it too, like there is probably a fine line, but I like I haven't personally experienced it. But like my agent only said yes to working with me because she believed in the idea, like the thesis of the book, right? So nobody would ever ask me to change that because like the editor as well bought the book because he believed in the thesis, the overarching idea that I have. But where I think these people really help is their feedback. Like my agent really helped me focus on how could this relate to office workers? Because like, I don't know any, like, I don't know it. I haven't worked in an office ever. So like, her giving me suggestions and ideas was really, really helpful in order to make the book as good as possible. And as well, like she knows what editors want. So she knows how to formulate the arguments that I wanted to make in the book in a way that would be pleasing and get the editors to sign off on it. Same with the editor. He's like, it's my job to bring up points for you to think about. It's not my job to tell you what to write. He's like, I'll go through line by line and tell you what you should think about for every single sentence. If you want to disregard all of it, then we're still good. If you want to do all of it, then just make sure that you're on board with that as well. He's like, it's not my job to tell you what to write. It's my job to tell you what to think about when you're writing it, just to make sure that your points come across as clearly and as strongly as possible. So are you putting in like even more resources into this, more time? I mean, aside from the input that you get back from your editor and your agent, like, are you going out and doing way more interviews than you normally would? Like, research interviews for the book and like examples and case studies and that sort of stuff? It's funny because one of my good friends is writing a book for a publisher that's a memoir and mine is not a memoir. So all of the points that I make in, and this is another reason why I wanted to go this route is because I'm really good at just giving an opinion. Like everybody's good at giving their opinion, right? But like in writing a, a traditional book, I have to back up my, because People don't know who I am. Like, there's a small circle of people on the internet who know who I am. Most people do not have any idea who I am. So if I make a claim or if I make a statement, I need to back that up with 
an example, a case study, a research. So like every major point that I make in the book has to be backed by something else, which is actually really interesting because I feel like it's making me better in the way that I formulate written opinions because it's not just like Paul thinks this one thing on Sunday, like mornings kind of thing. It's like, this is like, here's the study. Here's an example of somebody doing this successfully and that sort of thing. So it's really interesting to kind of do that. So yeah, there is, it's going to take me, we're talking now, like this is, we're recording this like mid-May. It's going to take me until December to write the book. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, where are you in that process now and how long from draft and then into the editing process and all that? So I've done one, I've done chapter one. It took me about a week. It's almost 6,000 words. So, and like, if I can keep up that pace and it's a 14 chapter book, then we're on track with revisions. My editor and I have to give the book off like we have to hand the book off by the end of december oh so by so by december it has also gone through the editor with revisions and all that yes so i need to write it probably by like the beginning of the fall and then it needs to go through like a couple rounds of revisions and line edits and copy edits and that sort of thing that actually seems pretty fast like when i see it read a book i think of a book like wow that must have taken years to produce you know (laughs) just just knowing like like the perfection that goes into it you know yeah. And I started the process in December. So it'll take about a year to get, and it took me two and a half months to do the proposal, which is almost the book, which is why the book can go as fast as it can. But then the book won't come out for another seven or eight months. So after the book is done, then we start to plan like the, the marketing strategy and the release strategy, and then like the, the cover design and, and all of that. So it's still a couple years process. <laughs> But yeah, the writing isn't, yeah, probably about nine months total to to write it. So I'm curious about like the business side of going the published route. What does a typical book deal look like? Or what can you kind of share from your experience there? Like what to expect up front and down the road? And how do the mechanics of that look? It's interesting because at the publishers are almost like, and to relate it to, to our world, they're almost like like early stage VCs. Like they're going to put a bunch of money in a bunch of different directions in the hopes that one pays off. And the amount of money that the author gets depends on quite a few things. It, one, it 100% depends on audience. Like that's, well, not 100%, but like a lot of 100% counts to audience and marketability of you. It counts if you've written another book traditionally and, and published it. And even nowadays it's kind of changing a bit because they can see the numbers that are posted for self-published books so they can get an idea of like audience size and where it's going to fall. But then a lot of it is them taking a chance. Like I'm a first time author in their eyes. So they're taking a big chance. So a lot of it comes down to like how well my agent pitches the editor and then the editor pitches the publisher, right? So like my deal was in the six figures, but like I know some people that have like really good book ideas and they got like 20K for their book. So like I don't think I've ever heard of anybody getting a book deal that's under 10 grand. So it's always in the five or six figures, but then I know people who've got like 200, $500,000 book deals. How does that pay out? Is it is it all up front or is it like on delivery of the draft? And how does that work? It's so like a client project if you're a good freelancer. So you get a down payment because down payments are so important. And this isn't even how mine works, but how it typically works is you get like a quarter down payment, a quarter when you submit the first draft, a quarter when you submit the final manuscript, and a quarter within a year of publishing. So say you get a $100,000 book deal, you're going to get four chunks of $2,500, $1,000, sorry. How does it look down the like royalties and distributions and all that? It depends. Like it depends on the structure of the deal, but you usually get like 
a buck a book on hardcover, maybe a little bit more for digital, more sometimes for audio. It depends on the structure of the deal, but you get a very small percentage. So with traditional publishing, like it's a numbers game, like you need volume in order to make money and you definitely need volume in order to make money past your advance. Like once your advance is paid out and a lot of deals too, I found out are structured where you get a different percentage when you're paying down your advance versus after your advance is paid out. So you could get 10% in one scenario and then 5% or 20% after it's paid out. So the, the structure of those deals, like I don't know enough about it. I only know my, like my own one time thing, but like, it's so like, it's so interesting to kind of learn all of this. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, for me and probably a lot of people listening, even folks who've done their own eBooks and courses and stuff, it is like a totally different world and totally different process. But I, I mean, even if you end up kind of breaking even or not even making money on the book, obviously going the published route and getting that exposure you know, has the potential to bring way more people into your audience, into your products, and all the rest. Exactly. And all the people that I've talked to that have wildly successful books is like the book doesn't make money or doesn't make a ton of money, but it's what you do once you capitalize on that audience that you built from the book that makes you money. So it's just like my newsletter doesn't tag my newsletter makes me zero dollars. But I use my newsletter to sell my products. So my newsletter converts at like crazy rates, right? So it's the same with the book. And a lot of people like the books will lead to speaking. That's not for me, but like a lot of books can lead to like speaking gigs and like keynote speeches are like serious money. Or like private retreats and like um, workshops and that are serious money. Or even like for me, like online courses are serious, like a $20, 30000000000 billion industry. Like it's a big industry. So well, uh, well, Paul, this is super interesting as always. And uh, thank you for taking the time and, and sharing all, all this insight with us. And, you know, people should definitely go check out pjrvs.com. Get on your newsletter if you're not on it already. Uh, is that the best place to connect with you? Where, where else can people connect with you? <laughs> That's really the only place. Like, I don't use social media that much. I miss stuff on Twitter. I miss stuff on Instagram. But the newsletter, like, if somebody asks me a question that's subscribed to my list, I reply. And like I spend hours on Sundays replying to people because that's my favorite thing to do. So the newsletter is the best way to keep up with what I'm doing and to like see what's going on, but also to like keep in touch. Like I, I like talking to my subscribers as well. So Cool. All right. Well, thanks, Paul. Yeah. Cheers, man. All right. Was that good? Let me know what you thought of this one. Hit reply on any of the emails that I sent you recently. You're not getting my emails? Okay, then head over to my site, castjam.com. You can join my newsletter there. You'll get my best stuff about entrepreneurship, productizing, and more. Also, a five-star review in iTunes is always appreciated. That'll help others like us come find these episodes. All right, until next time, we get back to working on the business. Later. Later.